This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Uh, so I was going to hopefully talk to you today about, um, well, a little bit about Oscar Wilde, but also just about geek culture in general. Whatever you wish, I'm easy. Do you know, just before we start, if I could get you to tell me what you had for breakfast so I can get my levels. Of course. I'm not much of a breakfast person, but uh, I try to eat rice every day. So had some rice for breakfast. So you're Asian at heart. Or Caribbean, <laughs> or Car- or Asians are the Caribbeans at heart. You're listening to Bookmark. I'm Uma Paganampake Pagan. Juno Diaz is one of America's greatest living writers. His first story collection, Drown, received critical praise. His second story collection, This Is How You Lose Her, was a National Book Award finalist. And his novel, The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wilde, won the Pulitzer for Fiction in 2008. Juno was a keynote speaker at this year's Singapore Writers Festival, where I caught up with him for a conversation about nerd culture. Hello, my name is Juno Diaz. I am a writer. For me, I think I came of age with two books, right? And one of them was yours, Oscar Wow, in 2007. And of course, the other one was Michael Chabon's Cavalier and Clay. Because for me, I guess both of your books came at a time when the geek got literary credibility, or at least the stuffy critics started paying attention. And I was going to ask you right off the bat, where did geek culture start for Juno Diaz? What was the first thing? Was it Ultraman? Was it a cartoon? Was it a comic? Yeah, I um, I would say it began in Santo Domingo when I saw my first um, TV ever. I was uh, about five years old and what was playing on that television at that particular time was... Um, that uh, old 60s Ralph Bakshi Spider-Man cartoon. Right. So I began both modern media um, and my childhood in some ways with Spider-Man. What was it like back then with regards to accessibility? I mean, you saw Spider-Man, this cartoon. How easy was it for you to go, I want more of this? Where can I find it? Yeah, no, consumption was an issue. I mean, uh, <laughs> we certainly didn't have that kind of access. Uh, you know, we were about as far away from, you know, being able to get stuff online as you could imagine. Uh, it was sparse. It was sparse. It was like, uh, you know, rumors of love in a loveless family. That's how sparse it was. I used to get random issues of Spider-Man at our news agents in Kuala Lumpur because they just used to bring in whatever they could get. And I don't think I ever, ever read an arc to completion. Yeah, I, I, that's more or less what it felt like. It even felt like that when I was uh, living in New Jersey when I had immigrated over there uh, to the States. Is, uh, again, this was not at the forefront of capital. Um, in many ways, it was considered you know, um, sort of a sideline, ephemera, and therefore no one took it really seriously. Um, and therefore it wasn't uh, easy to keep a consistent sort of buying practice going. In 2012, you gave an interview to uh, The Geek's Guide where you were kind of cautious about seeing whether or not geek culture had become mainstream. But in 2017, I guess, it's no longer just a subculture. It is almost all, it's pervaded all of popular culture, our television, our bookshops, our cinemas, God knows. Has geek culture finally arrived? Is it mainstream? I mean, it depends. I guess my caution had 
um, less to do with its saturation. Um, again, capital has an insatiable appetite. Um, it, it will commodify everything, even sort of marginal practices like reading comics or science fiction books. And so it's no surprise that capital has you know, figured out ways to make a ton of money off of these um, pursuits and off these um, textual phenomena. For me, it's just that there are levels and that there are still um, sort of geek or nerd practices that are fundamentally nerd practices that lay outside of the larger popular culture. Sure, everybody watches Game of Thrones, but is everyone a fantasy book reader? You know, just because you've read Harry Potter and Game of Thrones doesn't mean that, you, that the fantasy market is thriving or that other fantasy writers are out there saying, man, I'm doing great now. In fact, <laughs> in some ways, they're often more marginalized um, when sort of people are just cherry having corporations cherry pick what they should read and what should they pay attention to. Because that's all they want, right? What's the next Game of Thrones? And I suppose that seems to drive the market for literature as well, which is which can be a dangerous thing. Well, I mean, again, it's what 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 when I was growing up, we sort of had a market that was less neoliberal, so that there were dozens of writers that you were reading and that you were interested to. Now, the kind of literary markets, whether we're talking about nerds or whether we're talking about mainstream, resembles more the economy of Brazil, where there's one winner and everyone else is a loser. So instead of like 12 or 20 writers that were trying to make a living, now it's really all just very, very small group of people that anyone's reading and everyone else is just collapsing around. But with this saturation that we're seeing, I guess, in the mainstream media in particular, did you ever imagine anything like that? I guess I wasn't. Yeah, I mean, no one can imagine. I certainly not, did not imagine that um, everybody would be into um, Game of Thrones. That seemed highly unlikely. But then again, everybody was into Harry Potter. They were. And once the Harry Potter phenomena broke, I think it became very easy to imagine how a kind of a, a literary story world could take over people's imagination um, and that it could become in some ways a default language for not just, um, you know, generations, but often for entire nations. Um, so that's cool. I mean, yeah. But ultimately, ultimately, I guess my, my exasperation is that so much of this is just corporate driven. Um, very little of it came from below. Uh, and, you know, it's almost always the kind of the corporations who are setting these things up and they're the ones who most benefit. And the, you know, again, I, I'm much more worried about the the health of the entire fantasy field, not whether my uncle can now, you know, talk about Game of Thrones. That's real nice, but I would rather have a healthy fantasy field. I find it very weird that my mom watches Thor and then tells me that they don't talk about the Infinity Stones much. And I'm like, this is really strange, mother. Yeah, well, <laughs> stop freaking me out. Hey, hey because <laughs> capitalism could tell me and you to wear buckets tomorrow and everybody will wear goddamn buckets. <laughs> we'll wear buckets. Again, this is less for me about some sort of, uh, you know, the innate nature of nerd culture and more of that, you know, this is now a site of uh, profit extraction for capital. I guess with the rise of this capitalization of nerd culture, we've also seen a rise of toxicity in nerd culture. And part of it has to do with, I guess, more platforms where people can 
talk about it. But it's not, it's not new, it's just that it seems to be spilling out of the nerd verse. Why is that? Why? What, what, what is it? I mean, my basic Psych 101 read of it is that nerds and geeks are feeling like, hey, it's, it's mine, it belongs to me, you're taking something away from me. I Look, I just think people who are accustomed to dominance are always looking for excuses to afflict and to terrorize uh, the people that they were historically accustomed to dominate. And so this, for example, comic books was a predominantly white male practice, uh, even though there were people of color in it from the beginning. And now that things are changing, where you're seeing uh, all sorts of creators from incredibly diverse background, uh, this has become a, a place where uh, people who feel that they're somehow losing their supremacy, where they get to vomit all their absurdities on the rest of us. This is not uncommon. Yeah? Um, this is in some ways less about, um, less about you know, any uh, sort of change in the power dynamics and more as a larger excuse to exercise the very power that they have always historically exercised. And of course, coming now, it feels almost like a perfect storm with everything that's going on in the United States, because the vast amount of these conversations do take place in the United States and I guess in, in Britain as well, not so much out here in Southeast Asia, but with, with, with the arguments about Trump and all of that supremacy stuff coming out, it seems like a perfect storm. Well, yeah, look, a lot of things are coming together. Um, and certainly um, there are now critical communities and that matters. When you're just the one person of color working in a comic book um, company, that's a problem. But when you have a, a large critical community uh, that allows you to not only a platform, but sort of support um, and allows you to have important conversations within yourselves, that alters a lot of the landscape. It creates a, a very, very different um, conversation. And I think that that's been very important and certainly our larger politics has exacerbated what's going on. Having a president who is a white supremacist is going to heighten all sorts of tension and heighten all sorts of resistances. And it gives these people the confidence to speak out where they previously never did. Or it just gives them a wider platform because I don't think a lot of these folks had much problem speaking That's out before. <laughs> um, I just think that we're now getting uh, a lot more co-signing, but equally folks are fighting back uh, with the same sort of um, ferocity. And is that what worries you about, I guess, this culture in particular that you've kind of embraced and written about and grew up with? I mean, I think the both of us have in, in different generations, but is that what worries you about where it might go? Well, again, I mean, it's not up to me for where any of this stuff goes. And it's it's not so much being an old man looking at something that they, you know, <laughs> that they used to love. And now, you know, it's gone corporate. It's gone. It's sold out. I, I mean, ultimately, it's we know that uh, things change one corporation, once corporation gets involved. Nobody can say that hip hop, the hip hop I grew up with as a kid, has it completely uh, altered as soon as big money came into it. And um, one can simultaneously continue to enjoy the transforming, the sort of transformed um, culture. One can continue to enjoy hip hop, even as one laments some of the damage that's been done to it as it's been commodified. 
And so I'm sort of constantly of two minds. Uh, I love comics, I love everything nerd, but at the same time, I'm also aware of how much we've lost as nerd communities once these kind of dollars have uh, entered into the equation. But surely there is a there is a part of it that does, I guess, highlight all of those great qualities that were previously kind of trapped within that subculture, all of the, the great bits about nerd culture. And surely that's coming to the forefront now, which is also a good thing. Well, again, the only time will tell. Um, ultimately, one of the, what's really wonderful is that, uh, you know, folks figure out ways to um, make things useful for themselves, even things that might be kind of screwy when looked at uh, closely. Yeah, um, we have a really remarkable ways of reincorporated or reincorporating um, things that would otherwise be toxic or reading against the messages. And that matters too. Um, there's things about the nerd community that ultimately didn't really exist and are only now coming into fruition. The idea of a community of nerds that's led by women, this was a fantasy up to a certain time ago, and now you're seeing it becoming not it being a reality. Uh, nerds of color having large platforms and large spaces where they can begin to think about, strategize, theorize, and create in ways that resonate um, within, in, without the community. That's also uh, an important innovation, something that's really kind of um, recent and that's growing and to me matters quite a bit. I'm not so nostalgic about sort of the past values. I think that there's new values that are far more interesting and far more important. And those are the ones that I think excite me the most. Tell me this though. The positive side of, I'm assuming, corporate involvement is the fact that I'm, I'm looking at the new uh, Black Panther movie that's coming out. I'm sure you've seen the trailer for that. And, and I think about how only when there is that much money behind something like that, that it gets out not only to America, but to the whole world in, in a way that is kind of emblematic and symbolic of what the creators intended. So you get that perfect vision of what is going on, or at least as close as possible. Surely that's a good thing. But I feel like this isn't about what's good or what's bad. I feel like you're trying to, you're trying to it's sort of like a parent talking religion, where you're trying to say, well, but this one thing about our religion is good. Um, I'm, I'm not stuck in the sort of the pessimistic mode. Um, there's a lot of things that one must applaud and value. But I, that's not where I'm at. I'm not a fan. I am a critical thinker. And therefore, the idea of simply thinking of it in a celebratory mode, uh, that I say for- problematic, yeah. For me, I save that for the sports I love. Um, for me, comics is part of my sort of critical enterprise. And so is nerddom. Um, it's something that I think about um, and theorize on quite heavily. Uh, tell me this, with Oscar Wilde, um, I, I love the footnotes in Oscar Wilde, and I was always curious as to whether that was always a part of the plan. Yeah, now, no publisher is going to say, uh, uh, no publisher I know, uh, except maybe uh, scholarly presses are going to say, hey, put footnotes in it. Uh, they, they weren't interested at all. My first editor wanted to take them all out and actually took them all out. Um, I got a, a second editor who um, allowed them in, and so I didn't have to have that fight for too long. Uh, for me, the footnotes were sort of uh, um, 
very important to the project, not simply because I like this kind of scholarly affectation, but because footnotes allowed me to address issues of authority. And in a book about dictatorship, issue of authority are very, very important. Those of us who survive uh, dictatorial societies, those of us who belong to societies that are emerging or have emerged from dictatorship know that the long shadow of dictatorship does not swiftly dispel, does not go away um, so easily. And therefore, we look for ways as artists to think about and to attempt to address these shadows and how they linger on inside of our families, inside of ourselves. And my one strategy of this, of course, is using this sort of innocuous um, sort of literary and intellectual convention, the footnote, to underscore some of the ways in which authority is granted by people quite freely, often to folks and institutions and ideas that do not deserve it. Which is an interesting thing because uh, there's an interesting experience in reading your book in, in its physical form and on a Kindle, for example. So on a Kindle, the, the footnotes are kind of hidden until the end and you've got to yeah. tap through. And so reading it through without the footnotes is a completely different experience from reading it uh, with the footnotes. And I felt that I think when I read it once with the footnotes and I had that deeper understanding of what you were trying to do, it felt like I could address the language in a, I could focus more on your language mm. uh, in the second time through on the Kindle, which was quite fascinating. Yeah, no, I mean, Kindle screws with footnoting. <laughs> they do, I, 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 I just think that Borges would have been appalled. Um, and it kind of disrupts the experience. In this way, technology actually has, makes it more difficult for us to engage with a convention like footnotes. You know, it's, it's wild that the paper uh, in this way trumps the technology, the screen. It does. Uh, Juno, it's been an absolute pleasure. Oh, no, man. Thank you so much, and have a great day. You too. Juno Diaz was one of the featured authors at this year's Singapore Writers' Festival. All of his books are stunning, but The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wow is an absolute masterpiece. Go read it. I'm Umar Paganampake Pagan, and you've been listening to Bookmark on BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.